Well, thanks, Graham, for bringing that reading so uh, clearly and helpfully to us. Uh, that's where we're going to be focusing today as we continue our series on the life and times of King David. I'm going to pray for us and ask that uh, we would be able to make the most of it. Uh, and I'd ask you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, thanks so much uh, for this part of your word. I thank you for what it tells us about your servant David. I pray this morning that you would give us insight and understanding because you're at work here by your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, want to, uh, it's, eight, it's early in the morning, but I want to see if you can help me out. Uh, does anyone know what city this might be the plan for? Uh, what city uh, this might be the plan for? Someone say Canberra. How do you know it's Canberra? Circles. Lots and lots of circles, yeah? You could say they're always going around in circles in Canberra. Ah, that's, uh, good, good, that's good material right there. Um, so here's the thing. Why, why, why Canberra? Why, why on earth was Canberra chosen to be the capital city of Australia? Well, uh, Federation, sorry, someone have an answer. Because Sydney and Melbourne argued is exactly right. So here's a picture of, uh, of around the time of Federation uh, where people were basically saying that all this power is concentrated in Sydney and the other place was in Melbourne. And they were really having a tussle trying to say, well, we're the most important city in Australia. And so what's the outcome of these sort of arm wrestles? Uh, let's pick a, pick a place that is nowhere to be the capital of Australia. And that, that's precisely and literally what they did. They, they picked a place which was neither Sydney nor Melbourne in order for it to be the capital city to solve all the tussle that was, that was going on. And so the capital is a compromise. It's a compromised place that draws people together. It's a unity thing. At least that's what we tell ourselves as we drive to Canberra, isn't it? So why, why Canberra? What do we see consolidated in our capital city? Well, we obviously see um, our politics centred there. We see the High Court of Australia there. We see uh, the history, the war memorials there. Um, the military in Duntroon, uh, training colleges there, and there's a whole bunch of the diplomatic corps that are based in Canberra. It's a hub. It's the central place uh, for our government. And what we want to see today is David was establishing a capital city for his nation. And so uh, we see that he starts out in a place called Hebron, which is there, and he moves the capital city up to Jerusalem. And we're going to have a look at that and when that happened. And if we sort of plonk it onto our little timeline that we've been working on uh, with David's life, we can see that this takes place about a thousand, give or take, about a thousand BC. About a thousand BC uh, that, that all these events take place. And we want to see how David establishes the kingdom. But to have a kingdom, you have to be the king. And I want to remind you, you remember the problem that there is in Israel uh, prior to this point. We had two people who had been anointed to be king. Yeah, Saul and David. And what we saw last week, very tragically for Saul and for his family, Saul is removed by the Philistines. He's killed by the Philistines. And so David is now free solely to be installed as the king. Why don't we have a look at where that happens in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5. And I'd love you to look with me uh, at these verses. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5. I'm going to read to you verses 1 to 4. 
all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We're your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. A couple of things to note here. First of all, you'll notice that David and the elders made a covenant together. Remember that important word we met last, uh, last week? They made a commitment, a, bond, a bonded agreement to say, you are to be our king. Second thing we want to note is that his base is in Hebron. And this is the tribe that he came from. And so it makes sense that he starts off with the head of his ruling to be in the land where everyone was his people, basically. But then you notice that David was king. Uh, it says it splits his rule into two parts. I don't know if you notice this. It says that he was king seven years in Hebron and six months uh, and 33 years in Israel and Judah. And so David actually has a split rule. So he reigned as a king for 40 years, but two different places. And we want to think, why was it that David moved his capital city? In order to do that, we need to learn some more about his capital city. Uh, in 2008, uh, while working in Jerusalem on the area where they believed that David's, uh, t uh, David's palace was, um, they were digging around and they found a bit of an opening. And in fact, they found what had up until then been uh, basically a secret tunnel that was underneath the palace that David had built in Jerusalem. And the best speculation we have is that it is the tunnel that is referred to in the verses here. So have a look. We're going to see how it was that Jerusalem came to be the capital city of, uh, of Israel. First thing to note is it wasn't actually a free city when David became king in Hebron. It was actually occupied by some people called the Jebusites. And we're going to see what happened to them here. Uh, in verse 6, we see the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. What, what does that imply? It's a pretty easy to defend spot. So it's raised up and it's able to be defended really easily. In fact, so easily that he's able to boast uh, the blind and the lame could keep you out. Uh, that doesn't end well when you're sort of facing David. Uh, they thought David can't get in here. Verse 7, Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is called the city of David. On that day, David said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward. In other words, what happened, what they did, we postulate, is they got in through the water shaft up into the middle of the, um, the defended area and then broke out from there and started attacking them from the inside rather than kind of building siege works up from the outside. Does that make sense? So it's kind of a little bit of a um, uh, Troy story, yes? Yep. Okay, you're familiar with the idea. Anyway, so they come in via the water shaft and take it over. Then David goes, all right, 
got this place. I'm going to build it into the city of David. Uh, Verse 10. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David. Uh, Not invoices to David, by the way. Envoys, that's people on his behalf, to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons. They built a palace for, for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. So what do we see? There's a tunnel. That's how they get in. Once he's in there, we can see that he, he, see, he thinks this is such a strategic city. And basically what he's done is he's moved the capital from down the south where Judah is. He's moved it north um, into a, another tribal area called Benjamin. But basically it opens up the whole north of Israel. So now it's, it's kind of a compromise capital. Yeah, It's not so far north or so far south. It's a compromised capital. And it happens to be the best defended city in the whole of the land. So he gets in via the tunnel. He knows that the Lord is with him. It says in verse 10, he became more and more powerful because the Lord was with him. And then we see this wonderful gift from the king of Tyre. Now I imagine the king of Tyre is saying, please don't come and attack me. Let me build you a lovely house. Okay, Which works out pretty well. David's pretty comfortable with all of that. I just want you to note, have a look at verse 13. So David's kicking goals everywhere. He's basically going brilliantly. But, but I want to not skim over verse 13. It says in verse 13, After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Uh, it just says it. It doesn't endorse it. Okay, It's a really important thing to note. That there's stuff that's mentioned in the Bible where we find out about the story and we find out what happens, but it doesn't have God's endorsement on it. And so I want you to see David did something that isn't in accord with God's, uh, with God's plan here, but probably helped make him more powerful. So by taking wives, he's making more alliances, and the concubines are basically just showing that he's powerful. Okay, uh, And so there it is. David's established, but he is not without flaw even at this point here. So David has got the state centered in Jerusalem. He's made it his capital, and he now has a palace there. But there's another half to consolidating power. David was only halfway there. He needed to bring the church, or all the religious aspects of Israel, to Jerusalem, the priests and the ark. And in order to understand all that, we need to go for some background. So you're ready to dive into uh, to some background to understand it. Well, first of all, we need to introduce you to the Ark of the Covenant. And yes, it did exist before the Indiana Jones movies. Um, so here's the Ark of the Covenant. And we want to find out about how it's made. And if we learn about this, we'll start to understand what is otherwise a pretty scary thing that happens to a bloke called Uzzah. Uh, come back with me, or you can just listen to me if you'd like. In Exodus uh, 37, we hear this. This is where Moses is told by God how to make the ark. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. He overlaid it with pure gold, both inside and out, and made a gold molding around it. He cast four gold rings for it, and fastened them to the four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to 
carry it. Okay, here's what we need to see. We need to see there's a thing called the atonement cover. That's the top of the ark. How big is the ark? It's about a meter, 1.1 meters long, about 68 centimeters wide, about 68 centimeters deep. Imagine an esky covered in gold. A lot more significant, obviously, than an esky, but that's about the rough kind of dimensions, okay? Got an esky. That's, that's basically the size. So there's the atonement cover. Has on top of it are these things called cherubim. And you'll hear elsewhere that God is enthroned between the cherubim on top of the ark. In other words, this is the holiest place right here. Then you'll notice that it's got rings. Why did it have rings? What were the rings for? Are you following? To put the poles through. Why do you have poles? Okay, you guys are doing really well. Very good. So let's take our ark, and we see, uh, it just says it very simply in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10, verse 8. It says this, At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of God, to stand before the Lord, to minister, and to pronounce blessings on its name, as they still do to this day. So who's supposed to be looking after the ark? People from the tribe of? Levi, excellent, not the genes people. Okay, here we go. Um, so we're supposed to have Levites, these blokes here, carrying it on their shoulders. That is how the ark is supposed to move around. Okay, everyone clear? Had your ark instruction for the morning? Very good, fantastic. Now the ark was the most important thing in all of Israel. And when they went to war, one day, the Israelites decided, hey, we're in a bit of a tussle here. What we need to do is we need to make sure to beat the Philistines that we bring the ark with us because it's going to be our kind of like super weapon, okay? Because God's with us, we'll win. Only problem with that plan was they lost. And when they lost, they lost the ark as well. And the Philistines took the ark and put it in the temple of their god Dagon, a big stone bloke. This is Easter Island, but okay, all right? So... Uh, so there's Dagon, and Dagon's in, uh, in his temple. The Ark of God is put in front of it, and all sorts of bad things start happening in the city. Um, people start getting tumors, and all sorts of stuff started, starts to happen. And anyway, in the morning, they come into the temple, and they find out that Dagon has actually fallen down on his face in front of the, people, uh, in front of the Ark of God. It's quite, a, uh, quite an amazing little... Um, little story and so they've lost the ark and then they find Dagon all broken up in front of them and so they have a bit of a plan their plan is um, as the ark of God was entering Ekron the people of Ekron cried out they brought the ark of God of Israel around to kill us and our people in other words <laughs> one of the Philistine cities had had enough of the ark they moved it to another one people started getting tumors there so they moved it to the next city and these guys are going we're not having it so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic and God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So what they did, you just saw the little cart move away. What they did was they got the ark onto a cart and they said, if the, if the ark goes back to Israel on its own, we'll know that, it, that God wanted to bring it home. 
if the if the uh, the ark sits on the cart and it just goes around little circles, this is just an unfortunate thing that's happened to us. So they put the ark on the cart. Well, the cart's already left, but and it went off straight away. It it went straight back to Israel with no driver, just the cows pulling it. It went straight back to Israel. And when it got to Israel, the Israelites were delighted to see it. They chopped up the cart and sacrificed the cows on the altar of the, um, the chopped up cart, which they burnt. Um, wonderful. Now, all of that is background. Why does that matter? Let's return to King David. King David wanted to move the ark. And so what does he do? Well, he wants to be careful because the ark is a pretty dangerous thing. Here's a picture of moving some nuclear waste through France. It's dangerous stuff. So what do you need to do? You need to take lots of precautions all the way around it in order to make sure that nothing dangerous happens to you. You need to be careful when you're moving something powerful. And so they, they weren't uncareful. Ha, have a look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We'll go back there. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And uh, we'll look at verses 1 to 7. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. Just so we're clear, that's a staggering amount of people. He and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Now you know what that means. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ohio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of the irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there before the ark of God. At which point everyone goes, what? What's going on? Well, you guys just took a special class in ark moving, didn't you? So what's the first problem? The first problem is that they have a cart that they've got the ark on. Is that okay? No, you know it's not okay to do that. I suspect the reason it's on a cart is because that's how it had come from the Philistines. And so they're just going, well, well I guess we'll put the ark on a cart. The problem was God had told them explicitly not to do that. Who was supposed to be carrying the ark? But they, the Levites weren't carrying it. It was the sons of Abinadab, Uzzah, and Ahio who were carrying it. These aren't Levites. So the cart and its leaders are wrong. The next thing, they, they're celebrating with castanets. I think that's, that speaks for itself, doesn't it? No, that's a little joke, you see. That's, that's a joke. Uh, no, they're going for it. So they're, they're playing lots of music. But God never said that you have to move the ark with lots of music. He just said how you need to carry the ark. And so they're doing the wrong thing. And then they stumble, the, uh, the, uh, the oxen stumble, and Uzzah reaches out, and there's a dreadful cost, isn't there? He goes to catch the ark, which you would think is a perfectly reasonable thing, except no one should touch it, except the Levites. And so he catches it to kind of say, Oh God, whoopsie, want to look after you. And God says, Well, you can't play games with me. And so he dies there. Now, that should be fairly frightening, isn't it? And it actually causes David to have some reactions. Have a look at what happens. The, the first thing is that David is really angry. Have a look at verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah 
And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah, which means breaks out against Uzzah. So David's first response is, what? Are you kidding me? I'm trying to do everything right, and this guy dies. That's not okay, God. And so David's first thing is to object to God. Now, just as a piece of advice, when you think you're right and you're sure God's wrong, there's a pretty good possibility that you're wrong. But David's first response is anger. And his next response then makes sense. It's fear, isn't it? Have a look at verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? In other words, stop this whole procession. Everybody go home. Drop the ark. Step away from the dangerous thing. And the ark gets put into the house of Obed-Edom. And I suspect it's a little bit, it's probably a little bit cruel. Because what does David think of the ark at this point? thinks it's deadly dangerous, doesn't it? But he parks it in the house of Obed-Edom. Anyway, eventually the report comes back and how things work out for Obed-Edom. Swimmingly. He's blessed abundantly. And David goes, all right, okay, take two. Let's have a second go at this because I want that blessing. I want that blessing in my house, not just in Obed-Edom's house. And so he has a second go at it. And he goes completely over the top at this point in worship. Have a look at verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Let's see if we can measure that out, folks. One, two, three, four, five, six, and bull and fattened calf. That's pretty crazy. It's a long way from uh, Hebron to Jerusalem. On top of that, did you notice how the ark was being moved? Have a look at the text. What does it tell us? Yeah, When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. That's pretty good, isn't it? So David's got the idea, but now he's doing something that God hasn't asked. He's over. He's over-sacrificing. God just said, carry it. Have the Levites carry it. Everything's going to be good. But now David's going, okay, got six steps, sacrifice. Another six steps, sacrifice. It's, it's carnage. But it's David trying to not be afraid of God. However, he gets into dancing, and his dancing gets him into trouble with, uh, with King Saul's daughter. Ha- have a look with me at, uh, at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched him from a window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. This is pretty interesting, guys. David is, if nothing else, totally committed to this. And he's dancing around before the Lord. And she's there going, look, that is is utterly unbecoming for a king. Right? That's not kingly behavior. This dancing, I don't know if he was a good dancer or not. Maybe it was bad dancing, right? And I won't do any bad dancing in front of you because that might be unbecoming for me. But here's the thing. She despised him. She looked down on him and said, your worship is not very socially okay. And I wonder, I just wonder, I'll, I'll... I was reflecting on this. Have you ever despised worship from another? Have you ever seen somebody so going for it with God that you thought to themselves, you thought to yourself, that's just over, over the top. I don't know why they do that. Has anyone thought that in their heart before? And if you have, are we daughters of 
Mikhail, in that sense? In that sense, are we people who are looking down the nose on the wholehearted devotion of another? And I don't think God endorses that. So we might want to watch how we watch other people praising God. I want you to see, though, David's, David's a bit of a genius here. What he's done, he's established the state and the church together. He's been able to bring together, at the end of this chapter, he's been able to bring together the center, the political center, and the religious center in a brand new capital in Jerusalem. And I think it's pretty good. And you can see that David's life has taken a great reversal. He's gone from begging from Nabal. Do you remember that story? Begging for food in the desert. He's seen Saul and his sons removed. And now he's at the, pl- at the place, at the end of this chapter, where he's actually able to say, I am now giving gifts to the people who have come to Jerusalem. He's blessing them at the end of that chapter. So what do we do with this? That's some history. Wow, who knew Israel had a new capital city and David was the king? Excellent, go and live that out. What should we do? What should we do with it? I want you to see that the living God is holy and he will not be treated as a hobby. The living God is holy and he will not be treated as a hobby. And we must come to him as he reveals himself to us. So we might think, hey God, you'll be okay with a cart. It'll be okay for you if I come once a month to church. That'll be fine. you, You couldn't expect more than that from me, could you? It'll be okay if I keep you quarantined away from the rest of my life because I've decided that. In many cases, we treat God as a hobby and not as holy. We need to know that when we come to God, we need to come to Him through Jesus because the holy God is dangerous for sinners. The holy God is dangerous for sinners. Have a listen to this. It's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty scary stuff. It says, uh, it says here, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, talking about Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy." See, to approach the holy God, we need to have a sacrifice. Death for sin. And you can either die for your sin or invite Jesus to die on your behalf. Either way, stumbling into the presence of the holy God as sinners won't cut it. We need to approach him through Jesus who disarms God with his self-sacrifice. As we think about the place that God could take in our hearts, I want to ask you, is God the capital city of your life or the holiday house that you visit occasionally? Is God the capital city? Does all the commerce, does all the finance, does all the love, does all the life run through the capital city or just a place that we occasionally visit and kind of open the door and blow the the cobwebs out? Is he at the center of life and business for you? Have you installed God in the center of your life? And lastly, I want us to think about worship. 
What does it mean to worship God? Does it mean that we have to sing loudly here? Well, you can do that. Does it mean you have to raise your arms? You can do that. Do some of you need to dance before the Lord? Knock yourselves out. That'll be okay. But here's the thing. It needs to be wholehearted. That's what David did. He was wholeheartedly devoted to God. We need to do it together. And as we do that, we need to not be looking silent, sideways, right? I don't know why she's dancing. I mean, he's dancing because it'll be the men who'll lead, won't it? Following King David. I've got you boys here. I know you're onto it. Okay. But here's the thing. Wholehearted, together with an audience of one, not an audience of everyone else, right? So we do it together. It's a corporate act, but it's an individual audience. We are talking to God, the living God, and He cares where your heart is. He cares where your heart is. Well, where do we leave David at the end of this, uh, this little period we've been looking at? Then David knew the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. One may ask, what more could David want? Come back next week and find out. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fact that you, the holy and awesome God, have made a way for people who have sinned like us to come before you. Father, help us take you from the margins of our life to make you our capital city. Father, help us to worship you with all our hearts together and with you as our sole audience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.